We are Dr. Sarah Bone and Dr. Lisa Tartaglia. We are both actively practicing osteopathic physicians, dual boarded in family medicine and hospice and palliative medicine. You Only Die Once is a virtual place for sharing information about serious illness, the end of life process, hospice and palliative medicine with the patient, the family, and the practitioner. You only die once, and we believe it can and should be a good death. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Tartaglia. Dr. Bone. This is about breathing today. So we want to talk a little bit about your lungs because that's what you use for your breathing and how the lungs work and how that oxygen exchange kind of occurs. Your, your lungs don't really do anything. They just kind of sit in your chest and your diaphragm and the muscles between your ribs, the intercostal muscles, do all of the labor. They do all of the work and they, you, they just, uh, the muscles do the work. The, the lungs just lay there. Yeah. The lung tissue is sponge-like and the lungs have these porous openings in them and as your diaphragm pulls down it creates a vacuum and it sucks air into your chest and then as you exhale the diaphragm pushes up where the intercostal muscles squeeze in and it pushes the air out of your lungs and so just like a sponge if you have a kitchen sponge when you first open that sponge package, it's so soft and it's so squishy and you dip it in the water and you hold it up and it holds the water and you can wring the water out. And it's just an easy to use kitchen appliance or kitchen uh, tool. Your lungs are that same way, but just like your kitchen sponge, your lungs age. So as uh, your sponge ages, you notice that it gets stiff and it gets hard. And so when you dip it in the water, it doesn't absorb the water very well. And when you hold it up, the water just pours out. And when you go to wring the water out, it's really difficult to get that water to come out of there. And that's basically what happens to your lungs as they age also. Right. And your lungs get stiff for many reasons. It could just be age, but there are also disease processes that can cause that. And that will ultimately affect your um, breathing. So there's some common causes for lung conditions that we're going to discuss. Um, a lot of you probably have heard of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There's always a lot of commercials on that. COPD is the acronym for that, mm -hmm. but chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a, a stiffening process of the lungs. Yeah, so that's when your sponge or your lungs are not functioning uh, appropriately. Uh, there's other things that can cause uh, rheumatoid arthritis, which is kind of interesting. People don't realize that the medications for rheumatoid arthritis, as well as the actual disease process, can cause a sniffing of your lungs and your loss of function of your lungs. It's a scarring process that occurs, and that's a lot of what happens in many of the disease processes that make your lungs not uh, pliable anymore, and it makes your diaphragm work harder, it makes your heart work harder to to push the air out or suck mm -hmm. the air in or to push the blood through the lungs because your lungs have a lot of vascularity to them so that the air exchange can occur. The membrane between where the air side is and where the blood side is, that membrane's really thin and over time it just gets stiff. Mm -hmm. So then there's very poor air exchange because of the stiffness. 
And so rheumatoid arthritis or the medications for it can, can advance that scarring process mm -hmm. and make those lungs stiffer sooner. The other thing is cancers. Um, you know, obviously lung cancer affects lungs and breathing, but a lot of cancers can metastasize to the lungs and cancer treatments can affect the lungs. The tumor itself can take up airspace or the treatment, whether it's a chemotherapy, could affect the lungs or other organ systems, making it more difficult for your diaphragm and your heart to work, or like radiation may, may cause a scarring process in the yes, chest. which allows you not to breathe easily because there's the, the, the chest can be scarred. And that happens oftentimes with uh, breast cancer and years ago, um, some thyroid cancers, depending on the radiation that they use, it can really affect and cause you to have restrictive lung disease. And maybe even a GI cancer or mm -hmm. esophageal cancer. Yes, that's true. Could affect it. Yeah. So radiation, cancers, medications to treat those malignancies can certainly cause it. And, and other scarring processes that are maybe not really cancerous, but like interstitial lung disease, that's a non-cancerous process that can affect the lungs. Right. Asthma can affect the lungs. If you do not, if you have asthma, but you don't have good control over your disease, meaning you're not taking your medications, you have multiple exacerbations, it can promote scarring to the lungs. So infections in general, uh, can also affect the lungs and cause premature scarring, whether it's a bacterial pneumonia or a viral pneumonia. I know during 2020, 2021 and, and beyond, we are seeing yeah. a premature scarring of the lung tissue in some patients with that have had COVID with a scarring process that's occurred. And it instead of being a scarring process that occurs over months to years, it's scarring that can be severe and occur over hours to days. I know we cared for a patient and on a daily basis, we could see the serial x-rays and they just, we just do one view now. We're not doing two view x-rays mm -hmm. because we want to limit the radiation as much as we can, but you can see the scarring advancing on a daily basis in some patients that have had uh, COVID infections. Yeah. So that's a viral illness. And you think, well, you know, virus, it's really hard to fight, you know, bacteria we have antibiotics for, but we don't really have good antivirals. And viral illnesses and bacterial things that affect your lungs are not the only things that can get right. into your lungs. There's fungal infections um, as, as another uh, process um, that can really affect the lungs and cause damage quite significantly and quite rapidly. And I think on the West Coast, oh, and I cannot remember, cryptococcus and, yes. and coccidiomycoses, those are uh, dust and bird related. It's not really a bacteria and it's not really a fungus, but I know that they have issues on the West Coast in some desert areas right. and some places that where they raise a lot of birds or poultry that they can have some of these things that can get into your lungs and can affect your ability to breathe. And speaking of the West Coast, um, they have a lot of um, smoke-related um, incidents and a lot of fires due to their dryness, and that also can affect your lungs. We blame cigarette smoking because that's something that we have control on, but there are many causes of smoke mm -hmm. inhalation. You know, like firefighters have damage to their lungs from the smoke that they inhale, and I know that they're provided different uh, equipment to try to help reduce their smoke inhalation, but there are so many things that we can inhale that we can't control or we just didn't know about. 
asbestosis, yep. silicosis. There are just other things, paint fumes possibly, rubber mm -hmm. plant. If you work in a manufacturing plant, farmers with the dust that they're yes. exposed to, all those things can cause additional scarring or premature scarring of your lungs. Right. And one thing that we need to discuss um, that's kind of new agey in my career time in the last 20, 25 years that's really been more developed is sleep apnea. Mm. That's more of a central, centrally located um, disease that occurs into the lungs, but that's an important disease to It's discuss. not really a scarring process no. at all, is mm -mm. it? No, it's just, it's just the brain does not uh, give the signal to breathe. Okay. And I know that some people just the way they're built, they used to call it Pickwickian, where they had a large chest, mm -hmm. large heavy chest, and when they would lay flat, their chest, their, their body would just not breathe Pretty as much. deep. And so sleep apnea can affect many different people. Yeah, it's really important. So we may have missed a few things. Can you think of anything else that we missed on that list? I know that's a long list. That's of... a long list. I don't think of any, you know, anything. I think it's important though, um, as we segue, is, is there's, the body is a unit, right? And as mm -hmm. osteopathic physicians, we were, we're taught that day one of medical school. But it is so important to understand for disease process, because sometimes breathing might be affected um, because of other illnesses and other body parts. And that's what I think we need to focus on. And I think that's a really good point because sometimes it's not the lungs or the diaphragm or the interstitial muscles, right? The intercostal muscles that are causing you the problems. It's maybe something else that's not working right that causes you the breathing trouble. Right. So a lot of heart diseases can cause you breathing problems. That might be obvious to some people, but some people it may not be. Um, it's congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. um, some people that have like angina or they have a history of heart attacks, they have difficulty with uh, breathing if they exert themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, pulmonary hypertension is also can be related to the heart. It's usually due to valvular heart disease. Um, if that, that valve is so stiff, then the heart can't push it through to get mm -hmm. to the lungs and you can get short of breath or you can get pulmonary congestion. Exactly. And, and like we were saying, there's the thin line to exchange oxygen in the lungs. And if there's, if there's congestion, that's not going to happen. Other organs that um, affect the blood flow through the lungs, mm -hmm. they might be involved like the, the liver, you yeah. know, if a person has cirrhosis or, or something wrong with the liver and the blood doesn't freely flow from the heart to the liver, then that blood can kind of back up all the way through the heart and through the lungs and they can have problems just because their liver's not working well. Yep. And there's also kidney disease that can do that too. Because or if you've got a broken broken rib. Yep, that's true. Right. Broken rib, collarbone, any any type of anything that affects your anatomy will affect your breathing. So there's a lot of different things that affect your ability to breathe and can impair it significantly and sometimes can impair it permanently. There are many tests that we do on your lungs to see how well you're breathing and how well your lungs are working. Right. Um, obviously, we can do uh, chest x-rays. Uh, some, some, some modalities are CAT scans. I mean, they're the easy ones, right, just to get a picture of what we're looking at. But that doesn't give away all the diseases. Sometimes we have to do a pulmonary function test to try to label the disease. Is it restrictive? Is it more um, obstructive? Mm -hmm. 
And, and if anybody's ever done a pulmonary function test, have you ever done one? <laughs> they're horrible. <laughs> they're, they're kind of fun, but they're really horrible because they give you this tube that's about the size of, of a muffler off a VW bug, and they have you put it in their mouth, and they'll give you good, clear instructions mm -hmm. before. And they give you three chances at it because it's it's a complicated test. You think it's pretty easy just to blow on a tube, but what they want you to do is fill your lungs as full as you can, and then as fast and hard as you can, they want you to blow all that air out. And they, I don't know, my the when they did mine, they didn't warn me. They're screaming at you the yes. entire time to blow, 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 and their eyes are bugging out of their head. But they want to see how fast and how hard and how much air you can blow out, and they want you to blow it out for six seconds, six maybe even eight seconds, but for six full seconds. Which is six seconds? That's not very long. That's a long time it sure is. to blow hard, to blow out. And so most of your air, I think it's like 90% is supposed to come out in the first second. And they want to see the tail of that curve and how much air comes out at the very end because that gives them a lot of information. Yes, it can give them information of what the cause of the disease process is. Mm -hmm. And how severe it is, but it tells mm -hmm. them what's called the tidal volume, what do you inhale, what do you exhale, what's your functional capacity, how much can you inhale, how much can you exhale, and the FEV1, which is how much air comes out in one second. There's a lot of other data, and they match it on your height, your weight, your oh, age. Yes. I'm telling you, there are so many different things they want to have so that they make sure they put your information into the correct, you know, person uh, type so that they can figure that information out because it's all run by computer. It's so much data. Yeah, and it's really important that they pick the right patient for that test because not all patients can withstand the pulmonary function test. No, it seems like it would be easy, but it's really rigorous. Mm -hmm. And for some people, their lung injury, lung disease, so they're, severe. Yeah, they're already so severe, they just cannot participate. They can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, blood gases is something that is done mostly in the hospital setting. Yeah. Um, that was a, a big job when you were a medical student is to find the area of, of the radial the radial artery to get the blood gas, um, which is in your wrist. And I just remember it being very uh, traumatic. I, I love to be able to do it because, you know, uh, the respiratory therapist would let the students do it in our hospital. And it was like, low man on the totem pole, go do it. Most people know how to take a pulse at the wrist, and that is the radial artery. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a little bit smaller needle than they use when they draw blood from your arm. That's just a, a big tube. Mm -hmm. um, that look, look to me when I look at it, it looks like what I think the Alaskan pipeline looks like. I know it's much, much bigger, <laughs> but when they're sticking that into my arm, I think that thing is pretty huge. So the, when they put it in a radial artery, it's a smaller tube and it's attached to a syringe, not a vacutainer. The one that goes into your arm to draw blood is a vacuum device that actually kind of sucks the blood into that tube and it stops when it's full. Right. When they put that needle into the radial artery on that syringe, it just fills that syringe pretty quickly and they take it out and then they have to hold pressure on that for several minutes because they want to make sure that that bleeding stops and you don't get a great big bruise or mm -hmm. hematoma there. Right. But they usually do a little test on your wrist to make sure that, and it's just a simple bedside test that they do with checking pulse on both sides, an Allen test to make sure that you do have good circulation in both the radial and the ulnar artery there. 
but it's not a pleasant test because, you know, your vein isn't pleasant. Your artery has even more nerve and things in it. And yeah. It's not and it can be painful. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. Sometimes you can, just by seeing the tube, you can see how compromised the patient is because the blood will look more blue, really and truly, because it doesn't have as much oxygenation. But when it comes out of the artery and they've got good oxygenation, it is very bright red. Yeah. Yeah. So and they run that test pretty quickly too, don't yes. they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's even a bit, I mean, in my hospital, the, mm -hmm. um, the respiratory therapist had a way to do it bedside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's pretty instantly. Pretty quick. Get, get the results. So once we find out that an individual does not have good lung function and they do need supplemental oxygen, there are several ways to provide that supplemental mm -hmm. oxygen. And I think it's important for us to discuss it. I know we've, we have covered some supplemental oxygens in other videos, but it's, it's really nice for us to just go through uh, the different levels. So let's start with the nasal cannula. The nasal cannula is usually at two liters of oxygen. Yeah, that's where they start at. I know when I was pregnant with my kids and I had a kid, they gave me oxygen during the mm -hmm. delivery with the nasal cannula. And it, it's a little clear plastic tube that loops around your ears, not around your neck, but it loops around your ears. And then the little two little nasal prongs go in your nose. And, you know, it was cold air and I'm sure it was humidified, but I just thought that it smelled like air coming out of a, of a pool toy that had been blown up. It just smelled like plastic air. And I didn't really care for it. I can't imagine having to wear that all the time. Time, but I guess if it was between that and not being able to breathe, I would wear it and you would get used to it over time. But right. yeah, two liters is typically where they start. Yeah, and the maximum it can go up to is 10 liters. Yeah, in the home, but I'm sure that feels like you got your head out of the car window. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Air blowing up your nose. If they're using the nasal cannula, that can provide like 20 up to 50% mm -hmm. of your inspired uh, oxygen needs. Right. And it's important to know a lot of times there's like misnomers like my mom's a mouth breather that's not going to work it will work because there's um reserve for it to go yeah your your nasal sinuses are you know kind of big cavities sort of above the roof of your mouth and so even though she she might be a nasal or might not be a nasal breather she might be a mouth breather that nasal cannula is going to keep putting purified oxygen and so the oxygen inside of the the sinus and nasal cavities is just going to keep getting more and more and more. So when she does breathe in, she will certainly pull in some oxygen or some air through her nose, and that's going to pull that pure oxygen down into her lungs. So that's true. That's right. Really and good. really help to make that air exchange. They don't have to put the prongs in their mouth. No. No. Um, the next step up would be a simple face mask, and that usually is run from five to two uh, to 10 liters. Yeah. And that's going to give you about 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, there's a uh, reservoir mass that's at 15 liters, and that's 60 to 90 percent. Yeah, yeah, and that, so that's basically just the mask, but it's got like a little bag on it, mm -hmm. like the one that, in the airplanes that you yes. see, and they tell you the bag doesn't have to fill, and that is true. The right. reservoir does not have to fill. Then there's a high flow. Oh my goodness, high flow is loud, and it really yeah puts in the, <laughs> in the air and that's like up to 70 percent mm -hmm. um 70 liters excuse me and up right, to 100 percent yeah and then we'll go into um talking about the bipap or the cpap the cpap and bipap they're uh, masks that are kind of uh, placed on your face and they are tied to it yeah 
um, and they give straight air. It's 100%. It's usually 15 liters, and it's forced air, is what's been described. Some people at home use CPAP or BiPAP for their sleep apnea, but we use them a lot at the hospital, depending on what the illness is. And so if we've got an individual who's awake and alert and has a good swallow function, you know, the, mm -hmm. the risks of those are not so great. They can certainly get a sore across the bridge of their nose, or they can get you know, the, the little strap marks on their face mm -hmm. from wearing those straps. But if you've got an individual who maybe doesn't have a good safe swallow, that doesn't maybe have full uh, cognitive function, they might aspirate a little bit. Yeah. And that air that's being forced in there by the CPAP or the BiPAP is going to just actually push that fluid down into their lungs. And then they're at risk for a chemical pneumonitis from the food the formula or the reflux, even if it's just like, you know, stuff that they're refluxing up or their own saliva, it's going to force it into their lungs and they can get pneumonia from that. Right. And people don't realize that all these um, ad adjunct things to help you breathe, there are complications and that's a major complication. What are risks associated mm -hmm. with it? Yeah. And then the last one is the ET tube. Mm -hmm. So that's an endotracheal tube that, that, is, that goes into your mouth down into your trachea and then the trachea branches out and you know um, into the lungs so that is that gives you you know 100% oxygen that is what you would call a ventilator mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, after a certain amount of days usually seven to ten days they decide that okay the patient can either come off that level of oxygenation that ventilator they do not need that support we can take them down to BiPAP and then hopefully high flow and then hopefully nasal cannula step them down, step them down. however some patients um, due to their illness um, and their disease progression may never come off of that so then we have to look at a trach um, the tracheotomy which means you put the tube in directly into the trachea and that implies it's more of a permanent process mm -hmm. when they start talking about uh, tracheostomy and having the tube in their neck that implies that this is going to be there for the long term yeah and it's really important um, as physicians to really have that discussion with the patients before they get into this yeah. Yeah. type when, of crisis. When somebody has an illness like the, all those health conditions that we listed at the beginning, those indicate that you have an illness and it's serious and it certainly should be discussed many times along your journey. How would you want to be cared for if this progresses mm -hmm. to the point of needing a tube in your neck? Yeah. So we discussed uh, the different types of oxygenation we can use. And now we'd like to talk about the forms of the, how, the, how you supply the oxygen. How do you get the oxygen? Through a tank. Yeah. But how do you get to those tanks, Dr. Those, those tanks are big and they're heavy. I think they're typically green. Yes. And, you know, most ox patients who use supplemental oxygen, most of them have a few tanks in the home, but they don't rely on those tanks regularly because the tank is big, it's heavy, it's, you know, kind of hard to set up. Mm -hmm. And if you don't make sure you have that valve apparatus on there, right, you're going to leak all your oxygen out and the tank is going to be empty in just a few minutes and you won't have gotten any good from it. So um, you have to be careful with those tanks yeah. because they're pressurized tanks. And if one of them would fall over and the top get knocked Ooh. off of it, you got a missile shooting out of your house at yeah, 80, 80 miles an hour. And I think it would like go through your wall and go through your garage wall and maybe even go through, like if you have a cinder block wall, I think it yeah, would go through, it can blow it up. It might blow through that too. 
So that's how dangerous those are. And if you're between that, you know, wall and the end of that tank, you know, I think if you guys have seen the movie Jaws, you kind of see how those things can explode when the pouch gets knocked off of them, if anybody's old enough to have seen the movie Jaws. Yep. And in Florida, you know, tanks are important during hurricane season. We always make sure our patients have tanks that are, rely on oxygen at home because we may lose power. But the main source that we try to use um, for these patients that are homebound is concentrators. Right, right. Because they plug into the wall and they concentrate the oxygen that's in the air so that the patient doesn't have to use a tank. Mm -hmm. Another movie reference. Yeah. Uh, there's a Christmas movie, We're No Angels. It's a really old, I think it's a black and white movie uh -huh. with uh, Humphrey Bogart, Aldo Ray, and um, Peter Ustinov. And these gentlemen are criminals, and one of them was arrested for having an air plant. And he said, we sold three kinds of air. We sold mountain air, spring air, and all-purpose air, just for breathing. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So, you know, the concentrators are going to give the oxygen that a person needs without having to have those tanks. Mm -hmm. And it is just regular air. It's not a special kind of air. Right. But those concentrators are big and they're kind of bulky and they make a lot of noise mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, consume energy. So if you do lose power, you have to make sure your power company knows that you're dependent on oxygen. You got to get a letter from your physician to send to the power company, and that may be once a year. Because mm -hmm. I know qualifying for oxygen doesn't mean you get it forever, right? And the and the electric company may want to have a letter periodically saying that you are a priority to exactly. get your electricity turned back on. Mm -hmm. And just like Dr. Bone said, is because they're so cumbersome, like. Sometimes they have to be into another room because the patient can't sleep. It, it it generates so much heat. So in a smaller home, um, it's just hard in Florida in the summertime. Uh, they already have such a hard time breathing, and then their house gets so heated by the concentrator. And then they have to have the tubing from oh, the yes. patient back to that. And, of course, that can get wound around things. I know I had a patient that I cared for many years ago, and he would put his concentrator out on the back deck because his he had a little work shed that he had out behind the house, and he had to be able to string his tubing, take his tubing work. with him. Yeah, and he used to tease me. He's like, I'm, like, he said, I'm like a dog, and if I get my tubing wrapped around a tree, then I get stuck. But, you know, you could always tell where he was if you, if I went to the house and he didn't answer the door and I could hear that concentrator, I knew he was out back in his workshop and you just follow the tubing and he would follow be at the, the end of it. <laughs> yeah, you'd hope, right? Mm -hmm. There's also um, liquid oxygen. Now, although uh, Dr. Bone and I are both chemists, I know liquid oxygen is very expensive, but I've never personally used it with uh, patients. That's, that's out of my skill set. I don't mm -hmm. know much about liquid oxygen. Yeah. Um, I know there are portable concentrators, mm -hmm. but I also know those are a little bit expensive as well. Yeah. And that, that, I think expense is something we should talk about next. Yeah, yeah. How does somebody afford oxygen? How do they get it? Well, you have to qualify for it. So if you're not in a... Now, if you are severely ill and you are in a hospice setting, you do not qualify for it. Everyone, everyone that they think may have respiratory problems can get oxygen placed into their home. You don't need to worry about qualifying for it. Right. Yeah. If you're on hospice and they think there's a possibility, mm -hmm. that, that even if it's a remote possibility, they think you're going to need it, they're going to get you oxygen. Now in the real world setting, unfortunately we're guided by insurance, mm -hmm. so there's qualifications that you must have. 
And honestly, in my role now, I see how hard they are to follow. I don't, I don't know how you did it all those years. I bow to you in primary practice um, because it is very frustrating uh, to fight um, the insurance company and to get patients to qualify for oxygen because patients will have a feeling of breathlessness and they do not qualify on paper. It's, and it's, it is really difficult. Now we used to do it in our office and we would set it up and do it at home. And I cannot claim, um, you know, that I claim ownership to being able to accomplish that. I had two key people, um, a lady named Brandy and another lady named Leslie. And I would just tell them, there, go, oxygen do the test and they would just make it happen. Like so, little Matt church mice? Oh my mind. gosh, like little church mice and like little elves, little oxygen elves. Oh. And they were so wonderful because they would go out there and and they would do those tests. And well, they, they would... traveled to Florida. <laughs> I need if... them, please. <laughs> they were great, they were great people. So, so there's certain t tests that you have to do in order to qualify for oxygen. And then obviously for sleep apnea, there's sleep studies, right? And I use Brandy and Leslie for that. The patient would come in and they might complain of something vague like headaches or poor sleep or waking up, or they might have a sleep partner that would talk about them breathing and pausing. Mm -hmm. And there are you know, other vague things like neck measurements and body weight and uh, sleep habits that can kind of tip off that a person needs a sleep screening test. Mm -hmm. And then if they don't do well with that, then they would qualify for more intricate sleep apnea test. Now the gold standard sleep apnea test, you know, where they wire your legs to see if they move, they wire your finger to see what your oxygen level is, they wire your face and they wire your, they put like little pins in your hair to wire and see what your brain level is doing at night. They wire your chest to see what your heart is doing. Nobody likes those and nobody sleeps with those. You might go in and, and you know, somebody says, oh, you know, I usually sleep really well. I won't sleep 20 minutes. They'll sleep enough. They sleep mm -hmm. enough that they're able to get the information that they need to be able to tell you don't sleep because you're not breathing. Mm -hmm. So if your doctor says you need the test, even though you don't think you want the test, do the test because I've had people with such success stories getting their sleep apnea taken care of. Oh yeah, and now there's so many different mo mo uh, modalities for the, uh, instead of just having the mask, the CPAP, there's all these other different interesting things that have all, you know, just came out in the last 10 years to really help improve sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to do that. And you'll feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll have a better quality of life when you're feeling better. And and it will decrease the burden on your body. And even though, you know, maybe sleep apnea, yes, is a serious illness, you will extend your life and have a better quality of life by getting it evaluated and getting it addressed. Any of these illnesses, if you can identify them earlier mm -hmm. and treat them sooner and intervene, they're all going to give you a better lifestyle. Yeah. And, and, and more longevity because you'll be treated. So in addition to oxygen, um, that's obvious for breathing. There are medications, right, that we use for breathing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lots of medications, of course, mm -hmm. oral and inhaled. Uh -huh. And everybody that's had either asthma or you know some kind of breathing problem knows about the little puffers. Yes, yes, they're inhalers, but they're puffers. And, you know, and then there's, there's oral medications, the puffers, and then the nebula nebulized medications. Sometimes people reach a point where they can't breathe deep enough and their pulmonary function test either tells us that or they can't participate with a pulmonary mm -hmm. function test that they can't use the inhaler because right. you're supposed to 
inhale that little cloud of medicine and it's supposed to get it down into your lungs. It's not a binaca blast that you're just spraying on the back of your throat. You actually need to inhale it and get that cloud, that little, if you just spray it in the air, you can see this little mist cloud come out of it. And it is supposed to be a gentle cloud, not supposed to spray out. And you're supposed to use a spacer so that it, the cloud is allowed to form. And then you, with your lungs empty, you take an inhalation through that spacer and pull Fills that yeah, and pull that mist down into your lungs. Wait a minute or two so you don't get lightheaded and then take another inhalation of that. And that's why when you reach that point where you're not getting enough medication, you have to switch from the inhaler to the nebulizer. Right. And oftentimes your insurance won't pay for it. And people get very upset about that, but they know that there's certain levels of your disease and they're not going to pay for you to have those inhalers because it's just more they're not working. So and, it's you, a, and it's actually a risk it's a, because yeah. you're using that inhaler repeatedly and you're getting worse and worse because it's not getting into your lungs. Mm -hmm. And a big fear for a lot of respiratory physicians, a lot of respiratory providers is they don't want to hear that the patient expired and had the inhaler in their hand mm -hmm. because they kept using that inhaler and they were not getting the medication in. So if your doctor says it's time for you to use the nebulizer, your physician may know. They may know best and they, they may be advising you correctly and your insurance company even may be using the correct data. And it's not necessarily a cost-saving measure. No, it may be a life-saving It's a life-saving. It's a life-saving. And nebulizer, nebulized medications, there's all different types of medications. Um, I don't think we're going to go into We're not going to go into pharmacies. Yeah, we're not pharmacists. But there are lots of different classes of medications, the same things that are inhalers, and they will work just as uh, effectively. Yeah, and maybe even better because you're getting the medicine. Exactly. The nebulizer is a nuisance, but they've got them now that will plug into your like iPhone charger, plug into your car. Mm -hmm. Of course, they'll plug into the wall. They'll run on a battery and and change those things out every few years. If, you're in, if your nebulizer machine is very old, you need to get you a new one. They're not that expensive. No. And it shouldn't be taking 15, 20 minutes to do your nebulizer treatment. I think it's like seven to 12 minutes yeah. is what you should be using. And now they're so much smaller. They're not as heavy. I mean, they really, really have improved. Yeah. So the nebulizers are not as bad as what everybody mm -hmm. thinks it is. It's just what the significance of needing the nebulizer means. And I understand disliking that entirely. Exactly. Um, the oral medications that can be used are steroids. We use steroids a lot for people with pulmonary um, pulmonary disease. <laughs> we don't want to, we want to try to use them in short bursts um, and not um, use them for a long time because there are um, different side effects to steroids uh, that can be damaging in other organs. Um, however, a big telltale sign of somebody's disease progressing is when we're using steroids more and more and we have to use longer bursts. That really helps us prognosticate um, that their disease is progressing. If they're steroid dependent, if they're dependent on supplemental oxygen, that's a worrisome sign. Mm -hmm. As far as steroids, I don't think you, a person, you, me, anybody should be afraid of taking mm -hmm. steroids, particularly if it's for a short period of time. And what I used to tell patients is steroids is a sword that is very sharp 
on both sides. Mm -hmm. So they work extremely well, but they also have considerable side effect. So you want to use the most you need for the shortest duration. And it's exactly. better to start high and titrate as quickly as you can in a safe manner. Exactly. But they are definitely a life-saving medication for some patients. Yeah, yeah, especially um, patients that are already oxygen dependent. I mean, it really helps them so much when they have an exacerbation of breathing. Now, none of what we've talked about has been in necessarily just for patients that are end of life. That's mm -hmm. another special category, and it doesn't matter what the disease process is. When a person gets to that point where they are at the end of life, comfort is mostly the focus in the last few moments and hours and possibly even last few days of life. And so air hunger becomes more important than measurement on a finger. Because mm -hmm. if their circulation isn't very good, you may not even be able to detect a pulse, but they're awake and alert and they're talking to you and you're thinking, how can you not have a pulse? Well, you're checking at the wrist. If you check one of the other pulses, you know, you can tell, but they're just not circulating very well. Well, if they're not circulating very well, that pulse ox thing is not going to get a reading. And if you've ever used one of those little things, I think, you know, like we've got Aldi in our area, you periodically they'll have them at Aldi and you can buy one for 15, 20 bucks. Um, if your hands are cold, it's not going to read. You have to have good circulation to your fingers and your mm -hmm. hands have to be warm for that pulse oximeter to pick up. But if you've got somebody who's awake and they're alert and they're communicating with you, you don't need to check that pulse ox. Don't mm -hmm. focus on the numbers on that crazy little thing on their finger because the, the answer is in the patient's eyes, not on their finger. So look at the patient and focus on them. Yeah. And if they are really at the end of life and we're really trying to keep them comfortable, then there are medications we can use for air hunger you can certainly still use the steroids if they're taking oral medications. You can still certainly use the nebulizers. You can still certainly use the oxygen. But if they tell you, I'm tired of wearing that, it's hurting my ears, it's drying out my nose, and they're awake and alert, then then treat them with comfort. Yes, and, and treat the patient. Um, so the medications that we generally use, um, I, I personally never... Um, I know we have we have debates all the time. We don't really have debates. We discuss this. We argue. We argue. <laughs> I never stop steroids, even in the dying process. I don't I don't know why. It's just like even when they're not able to take them so much by mouth, I continue steroids. There are some physicians that will argue you should stop them, but I don't. Um, if they were comfortable, if they're if it yeah. was caught. Yeah. Now, as their symptoms um, increase, and that's progress and progress. That's when we go to using uh, a morphine uh, variant. Uh, for us, we use like a liquid morphine. It's a very small concentration, a very small amount that we give. Like pediatric, so it has to be liquid. Yeah, it has to be liquid. Um, the starting dose of morphine is five milligrams. It's less than taking a Percocet, but people have this whole stigma. But when we use morphine as uh, licensed physicians mm -hmm. and we're hospice and palliative, we do not use it to suppress the respiratory system. We use it more for air hunger to treat the symptom management to help the patients be able to relax because they are gasping for air. And yeah. they, they can some patients can verbalize that. And and there are multiple studies that indicate and show that it does ease that mm -hmm. air hunger. And patients will certainly tell you, you know, that when they have that shortness of breath, that dyspnea, 
that they cannot treat with the oxygen, it doesn't resolve with the nebulizer, that that oxygen will ease it. And they just want that small amount so that they don't have that air hunger sensation. Mm -hmm. And I've had many patients that were on my hospice service that were not near the end of life, and I just would start a low dose of morphine, and it basically gave them more life. Um, they were able to go out in their motorized scooter, go to Walmart, go shopping at Target, wherever they wanted to go, and it was like a lifesaver to them. So it, you know, it can uh, benefit you. Other uh, class of medication that we use for air hunger is more of an anxiety medication, enzolytics, because sometimes it is just mind over matter, mm -hmm. and that will help. If you can't breathe, you can get really anxious mm -hmm. in just a few seconds. Yeah. So I think it's just important for us to know that there are uh, treatments to be used for all types of breathing issues, whether you're newly diagnosed with like an asthma um, or, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or if you have an infectious process that's hopefully reversible, um, there are different entities that you can use to make yourself feel better. And it's important to know that um, when you are using the maximum of all these levels of things, you're already on oxygen, you're on nebulizers, you're on steroids, that you have a serious illness. And you should be talking with your physician about it. Your physician should be talking with you. And put them on the spot and ask them, just yeah. how serious is this? Yeah, it's time. The whole reason why we do this channel is because we want to give you, the patient, the information you needed to help you make educated decisions and be proactive in your medical care. We want the families to be supportive mm -hmm. and we want them to have the information and resources that they need so that you feel more comfortable about what's happening. Because we are mortal and these things do really happen and not everything can be cured. Yeah. Thank you for listening today. You can also find us on YouTube, channel name, You Only Die Once. If you have any specific questions you would like us to address, please feel free to send us an email at youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. That's youonlydieoncedos at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon.